Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, episode number eight, Prologue. Take it away, Jason. So I got some good news and I got some bad news. That's the way they always come in pairs. Yeah, it's true. It's this dichotomy. The The good news is I got a smartphone. So I Finally? So I entered the 21st century. Yeah, that's right. I uh, I went through this this issue where it's like, oh, I want the iPhone. And it's like, oh, I'll wait for the next iPhone. And then, oh, I'll wait for the next iPhone. And... Uh, you know, just in this just perpetual paralysis. But uh, I got to the point where, uh, you know, with moving and needing a new number and everything, I felt like it was time to abandon my feature phone and and go smartphone. And I'm loving it. Um, I think it's awesome. I love. I'm I'm totally geeking out with it. Like I, the other day we had to walk to the post office, and uh, you know we go there constantly. But uh, I used Google Maps, and it kind of like gave you walking directions, and you could see yourself in your phone, like. Yeah. See like a top-down view, like you're playing Pac-Man or something. This is the honeymoon period. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're an expert on the smartphone, right? No, I'm so. not an expert, but yeah, I remember we first getting one, and you're like obsessed, and you know you get all these apps for it and all this stuff, and then you know eventually it kind of lulls out and you get bored of it, and then you kind of settle into like a good routine where you're not overusing it. But it 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 sounds like probably maybe too nerdy or or uh, overly dramatic, but I feel like it changes how I do things. Like I look up stuff. Today I was at the mall with my uh, brother and my wife. My brother uh, asked, said, what is this or something? Some shirt had some phrase on it we didn't know. So I just looked it up. I was like, not going to wait. I would have only forgotten. Now I know what it means. It's useless, yep. but. One cool thing we did, we, uh, I was, we were at Sports Authority, and uh, we uh, were looking at sport watches because we've been doing a lot of running lately. And so uh, my wife and I, and so we uh, – there was this one sports watch and I took a picture of it with Google goggles and found like it was cheaper at Kmart. <laughs> yeah. Um, be careful of doing that. So I do this all the time. Amazon has a barcode scanning app and it'll tell you the price on Amazon or anywhere else. And I got Amazon prime. So I get free shipping always yep. and two days. That's pretty good. Right? So yeah, if you're, that's one thing, sorry to interject, but yeah. if you're a, a high school or a college student and you have an EDU email address, you can get Amazon prime for free. So definitely. Yeah, do you that. should do that. Also, I think, uh, caregivers like stay at home moms and some, I don't know. There's a bunch of people. I don't know how many stay at home yeah. moms we have listening to our podcast, but, uh, I don't know. Hundreds, hundreds. Okay. Thousands. Um, but, but yeah, so, so you go to the store and you're like looking up something on Amazon. So that's great because you're like saving money, right? Like I'm just going to order it on Amazon or even right from my phone and get it in two days. And that yep. part's not bad. That's good. Okay. The bad part is sometimes you want to buy it or you need to buy it because you need it kind of right then for something, but you see the reviews. And if you look at the reviews for like, you know, half to three quarters of stuff in the store, like going through Target or Walmart or Kmart or whatever, or like that watch, right? You scan it and you look at the reviews online and you'll find out it's terrible and then you won't buy it. And in the end, it wouldn't have – well, maybe a watch is a bad example. But like a T-shirt and it's like, oh, this T-shirt you know, starts to lose threads really fast. It's like you wouldn't normally care. But now because you see the reviews are two stars on Amazon, you don't buy it. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think that on the, the contra – is the the opposite is also true though i noticed that like a lot of mom and pop restaurants that yeah same thing you know they always say that like the like the ugliest looking mom and pop restaurants have the best food 
but it's like at the same time it's like you know it's like you never know what you're gonna get and you can't really sue them for millions if it's just a mom-pop restaurant so they have less on the line than like a mcdonald's or something which has to cook your food right you know um so but but yelp really helps there are other apps you know they if you find a place that's rated really well or a place that's rated really poorly it could really influence your judgment well but it at least the same analysis paralysis because you'll be somewhere and there'll be no good reviewed restaurants around so you won't it's like where do i go there's nothing good so you'll like drive oh, really yeah. far to go somewhere that's good even though it's really not that it's i don't know it's just about being unique because people on yelp for instance will pan a mcdonald's or a quiznos because it's a chain restaurant and they prefer independent restaurants over chain restaurants Yep. on average yep. that's my opinion i have no idea if that's true yeah definitely i think that there is like there are um uh what's the word like biases there are, they, there are less, yeah yeah exactly there's an internal inherent bias to the people on yelp and on these sites especially people that review them not so much patrons but i feel like as the barrier of entry to reviewing things goes down like as like for example you have your smartphone and it has a gps so it knows so it could even just be smart enough to know you went in a restaurant and came out you know and, and know that you were there for an hour and just say hey why don't you write a blur about this restaurant and uh if, as it becomes that easy, I think you'll get a more diverse population doing reviews. But as it is now, yeah, a lot of kind of hipster people who, you know, are really against the man and, and, and chain anything. A lot of those people are the ones doing the reviews. Yeah, I actually saw. So this is a really interesting thing, too. And we didn't have this in our news, but it is is interesting. So I'll talk about it now where uh, they did a study saying people are really well, I guess it's kind of like people are really bad at predicting what they're going to want in the future. So uh, they were taking for Netflix. If you ask people, like you can build a queue in Netflix and you know, these are the movies I'm going to watch in the future. And you'll put like all these highbrow movies on like artistic independent films. But then if it actually comes time to watch a movie, you watch like stupid, silly movies that you just want to watch to have a laugh and aren't serious and don't make you think because, but in the future, you think you're going to be like a smarter person. You're going to read these fancy books and watch these you know, really intelligent movies, but you don't end up actually doing that. And it's the same thing I think happens on Yelp where people want this idea of eating these nice restaurants all the time. But in reality, most people just end up going to McDonald's and Quiznos and Subway because you just want something you know what you're going to get. Yeah, because if you think about it, planning in general, like planning ahead and thinking about the future is is kind of hard. I mean, that's like, that requires like, a lot of computation that gets into the like the area of the brain that does like really hard complex stuff and so probably when you're in that mode you're more apt to like look at something intellectual but then the spur of the moment like oh i want to watch a comedy kicks in you know like an interrupt or something and so yeah you're just not accounting for that so so welcome to the world of smartphones that is good news maybe now yeah. you'll be able to respond to emails a little quicker and be pestered all the time with interruptions uh yeah definitely so you said you have some been... bad news too been pretty awesome yeah so the bad news uh am i gonna cry so I, I got a, <laughs> they installed a bike rack in our complex which i thought was great and uh that's not bad I news. Left, yeah i left my bike there and uh, after two days of leaving my bike there it was stolen someone had oh. cut the uh yeah it was the bike rack was inside of our garage which requires like a clicker to go in and out of so our hypothesis is that somebody just kind of snuck in behind a car and then you know once you're inside you can easily get out so they just stuck in and took our bike. Um, you know, I bought one of those cheap uh, chains. that's just like several steel, you know, threads that are 
kind of woven together and so they just cut through that did you see uh, it did it get picked or did they just cut it uh no they cut it yeah they cut through it so because i had like it was a frayed end you know on oh, yeah, they, yeah. they left the uh left the chain there well, that was nice um, of them. yeah so uh you know it really sucks but this is actually brings up a really interesting point see i just bought the bike and i paid with my credit card and so most you know just about any credit card out there uh, will actually has automatic purchase protection insurance. It's free. You don't have to pay for it or sign up or anything. It doesn't cost any money or anything like that. And uh, if something is lost or stolen um, or damaged within, like, I think it's 100 days, um, your credit card company will actually uh, reimburse you. So you can actually, like, you could buy, let's say you bought, let's say we went and bought this watch and we paid with our credit card and we throw the watch off a bridge. Um, well, be careful. I don't know. If you actively throwing it away yeah. might change things. Yeah, I guess you can't be that bad. If it but fell if it off falls, and got crushed. Yeah, if it fell off your wrist off a bridge, or yeah, it get crushed under a car or something. Even though it's it's uh, an accident, and um, even though it's like technically, it's I guess it's nobody's fault. But I mean, the fact is, it's not um, you know the manufacturer's fault or anything like that. Um, they'll still refund you the money. So I have another friend that this happened to. He bought an Xbox and someone actually broke in his house and stole. Well, they stole his Xbox and his TV. But uh, because he had bought the Xbox within 100 days, um, he got reimbursed for that. So uh, if ever something like that happens, um, you know, definitely take advantage of that. Oh. So, well, at least you know, check. We, you know, it's worth checking then for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to file a police report and, you know, a bunch of other things. So, um, you know, it's not just a... Uh, what's the word? I guess it's not a panacea. It won't cure free all your, pass, your problems. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's not a free pass. That's right. Yeah, but it's definitely but, something um, good to know so that you can check on it if it ever happens to you, which hopefully it yeah. doesn't. Yeah, definitely. Keep that in mind. So I'm kind of glad that uh, whoever had that intention was quick about it because if they had waited another like month or so, then I wouldn't have been able to use this option. So, so yeah, it kind of sucks. But, uh, you know, I can... Uh, I have my wife's bike that I can use to get to work. And it's pink and has a little horn and those little uh, <laughs> frill it, things it, outside. It has, it has one of those baskets because she uses it to go to like to the supermarket and stuff. Aww. So Yeah, it has a basket. It has those like really like soft, flat, cushy seats. Powerpuff girls not... on the wheels. <laughs> it's so I guess your wife isn't like – Oh, I, I was going to say a really young age, but that would sound really bad. So anyways, <laughs> no. She she uh it is green. It's kind of like a green mountain bike, so she's not a gir- too girly girl, which okay. is nice. It's not like the pink DS that I have to put up with. Oh, all right. Um, all right. But uh, so but uh, yeah, so that's the bad news. So are you doing anything cool for Fourth of July? Yeah. So by the time people are listening to this, we'll already have done it. So future me in the past is doing has done. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, I uh, already hang out hung out with uh, some my in laws uh, yesterday, so that was good. And uh, cool. had a good time there. We played some board games, uh, Wits and Wagers, which is uh, fun. And we played some Wii, uh, which my grandmother came over and she beat me at some of the Wii games, uh, wow. which is really embarrassing. Ones I never played before, so I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, that's just an excuse. So she's really old and she beat me. Uh, so <laughs> if you're listening, Grandma, uh, congratulations again. <laughs> uh, I'm still mourning that loss. And uh, so that was oh. that was a lot of fun. And then uh, we had some barbecue. And uh, tomorrow, going over to uh, my parents and grandparents and uh, probably do some more barbecue and hanging out. Maybe we'll play some board games and stuff. So uh, I don't think we're doing any fireworks or whatever. I used to be really into that when I was younger. 
uh, even though my parents said it was kind of like burning dollars and I might as well just light money on fire. They were pretty harsh about it. Uh, anyways, but... Uh, yeah, we used to do crazy stuff like make napalm and we used to buy the magnesium strips and make fireworks and all uh, that back in the yeah. day. Nowadays, you'd probably get in trouble with the Patriot Act, all that stuff, but... Uh, oh, that's true. That's true. You know, nowadays, things have become very tame. Like, I, uh, I went to get a chemistry set for my cousin's kid. It's his birthday. And... Uh, it actually advertised that you could eat everything in the chemistry set. That was a good it's thing? Like, yeah, it's like everything's edible. And I'm like, what? You know, I had a chemistry set when I was a kid, and it had, well, stuff, for example, stuff to make fireworks. And I'm pretty sure that stuff's not edible. So wow. Th- things have become much more tame, so it's kind of a sad I, thing. I know you can still do, at least in Florida, uh, they still have model rockets, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, But I know yeah, that's I think quickly they ha- they kind of that, fading yeah. away, too, which is kind of sad. Yeah, it's a shame. So what are you but, doing? You know, what are you doing for the weekend? Oh, so we're actually going to go into the city. We're going to go to San Francisco, um, and we're going to see they have a fireworks show, and uh, we're probably going to try and uh, you know grab some food and check out the uh, Museum of Modern Art and stuff like that. Oh, cool. So I guess we should explain so, for anybody not uh, from the U.S. who might be listening, since I like to think that we have listeners who are international. Um, yeah for sure but yeah so fourth of july is uh the independence of the u.s from uh from the rule of great britain and so uh on the fourth of july we celebrate that typically with like fireworks and a day off of work and uh, grilling and barbecuing that kind of stuff yep if we have any listeners from canada this is the equivalent to first of july or canada day yep that's right um but yeah it's basically a chance for everyone to get together they shoot off some fireworks you um Get a chance to sort of uh, uh, be appreciative for, like, all things that we have, you know? This yeah. is one of the things that I, we were talking about today. It's, like, the um, – it's true that, like, you get good things and bad things happen, like the bike getting stolen, things like that. But overall, I feel like uh, we're really lucky, you know? And, and one Definitely. of the things that makes this place so lucky is that you have open access to technology. Like, you have geeks like us who will tell you about programming and you have Wikipedia and the opportunity to learn just about anything and no one's uh, stopping you from 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 learning anything you want and from being as eclectic as, as, as your capacity. So, uh, yeah, definitely go out there and have some fun and celebrate. Yeah, definitely thankful for all of our soldiers overseas, you know, protecting our freedom this time, so... Yeah, I know there's some sure. controversy there sometimes, but definitely supporting the people who are out there, you know, in harm's way. So, Yeah, I mean, you know, different people have their opinions on, you know, what is worth risking life for and things like that. And with all that aside, uh, anytime somebody puts their life on the line for anything, it, uh, uh, you know, it's something that should be taken very seriously. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who are putting a lot on the line to, you know, keep a lot of this stuff going. So, so news. Yeah, so on a lighter note. <laughs> so I guess the first news article is uh, is one I put in there. And uh, it, it, I guess it's not really news. Maybe I should have shifted that farther because now this is going to sound silly anyways. But uh, this is an article I read. I guess it actually came out a couple weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least I saw it a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was talk- a guy writing about the difference between a developer, a programmer, and a computer scientist. And hopefully I'll get this part right, but it's the idea that, that was kind of interesting. And his, his yeah. thing was that a computer scientist, and he was saying that all of these uh, categories, these classes are necessary. Uh, and that the computer scientist is kind of the, the guy who's out there thinking about things. He's really math oriented. He proves yeah. out whether something's optimal or not. 
He has elite math skills, but in elite speak, he has 31337 math skills. <laughs> yes, that's that awesome. Guy. Uh, if nothing else, everyone should read this article just for that. That's pretty epic. <laughs> uh, and then uh, a programmer is uh, kind of the step down, somebody who's still, you know, into the architecture and the, you know, higher level programming. They're very efficient at things. They may not know how to prove it uh, emphatically, guarantee that this is the best, but they uh, they know about how it is. And they've got kind of maybe one or two areas where they're really, really experts at. Uh, and they're good at everything, but, you know, kind of key. And then a developer who, uh, I guess it might, I might change this and say kind of coder, um, but a developer is actually a little more higher than what I would consider just a coder. But a developer is somebody who writes code, but they're kind of like a generalist. They just work and they're really good at the art of writing code um, as opposed to, you know, necessarily the algorithms or data structures. Um, and so they're more used to working with like maybe frameworks and the glue code and integration of stuff and kind of testing. Um, and so he is saying that, you know, there's all these, these three different classes that, you know, they're kind of related. They have a lot of overlap. Um, and it was just kind of interesting thing. It made me think about, yeah, you know, and you and I have had this conversation of, before about the different classes of people in the programming world and about how that all of them are necessary, but that some are probably uh, considered more highly than others, you know, Janitors are really important. We, we really need janitors, but people don't always give them the respect they deserve. And I think some of the classes of uh, computer programmers are similar. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's a really good point. And the other part of it that's really interesting is that, you know, a computer scientist is, uh, it, it's really interesting to think about how experience relates to this, like experience versus versus knowledge, you know. A computer scientist could have a lot of knowledge, not necessarily so much experience. Yeah, that's a good but point. But then at, at the same time, they they need that experience. So a computer science with experience is still a lot more useful than one without, even though they're doing a lot of theoretical. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, same for all of these is that there's just this, this balance you have to strike between, you know, getting a lot of these skills, uh, you know, picking your path and gaining experience in that path, but also having a wide breadth of knowledge and and I think it's somewhat of a, that that plays into what happens to everybody first day on the job. You know, I remember first day on the job as a as a computer science guy. You know, not not a summer job where I was just uh, you know flipping burgers or whatever. But um, first job actually, you know, in the career workforce, and you kind of get in there, and you know, first few days you're really timid. You don't say much. Uh, I'm kind of an outspoken guy, and so uh, you know, after a few days you start saying stuff, trying to you know show that you know what's going on. And then for a while you think, wow, I'm smarter than all these people. And then a little bit more time goes on and you realize you probably have knowledge about things they don't, you know, newer stuff that they maybe don't know about yet or, or haven't looked into. But they have a lot of experience that uh, teaches them how and when are the best ways to apply those those bits of knowledge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they um, they have a lot of... One, one key thing of it is that they have many points of reference. So... You know, you might jump into a project and say, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. And then you hit this snag and uh, it really throws you off. The next time you go into a project, you're a little bit more wary. You know, you say, oh, you know, I'm not going to say this is going to take me a week because there's a chance that I might hit some snag. Or, or you know, last time I hit this snag. So this time I'm going to look and see if the future is going to be rocky. Like if, if this can happen again. Yeah. And if there's a chance that it can happen again, I'm going to make sure that people know about it. Yeah, you know, there are things that you can only learn from from learn the hard way, I guess. Yep, 
Yep, School of Hard Knocks. That's the phrase. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I should apologize. My voice sounds a little bit funny. Uh, I've been getting over being sick, so I apologize. Oh, in I thought it was all the clown training. That too, uh, but the, riding that unicycle and I tripped and, and ran into one of those uh, elephant platforms on my trachea. It was really bad. Oh, uh, rough. But no, so I apologize for that. I promise you can't get what I have over the uh, podcast, so don't worry. You don't have to wipe down <laughs> your headphones. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, yeah I actually, do sound a little bit you, funny. You can't contract diseases through social networking, although you are very close to some people and not so close to others. Yes. Okay. Which, which kind of leads to our next article, which is Google's social networking platform, Google Plus. Google Plus what? <laughs> Google Plus Plus. Oh, ooh. Sounds like a programming language. <laughs> it does. Maybe maybe they'll have an API and it will be. Okay, but stop. <laughs> I think that, <laughs> yeah, next show is Google Plus Plus. No, I think that... Um, you know, Google Plus is uh, come out, and uh, you know a bunch of people are getting in on it. I believe that they were doing invites, but um, yeah, it's but closed now down they're frozen now. invites. Yeah, I'm waiting yeah, in guess, that long line. So uh, yeah, same here. I guess they're gonna reopen invites pretty soon. But I did look at a bunch of the like videos and stuff other people who were in had posted. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things that is just really, I, from what I understand, and I've seen a few news articles on it, and. The big fundamental thing that keeps popping out is this idea of the circles, where it's now, I think the word is asymmetric. So, you know, in Facebook, it's symmetric. So if I'm friends with Patrick, Patrick's also friends with me. Uh, but in Google+, Plus, it's asymmetric, which means, you know, I could have Patrick in my friend circle, but he doesn't necessarily have to do the same to me. And so I can post to all of my friends um, and... Uh, and when they post to their circles, it may or may not come to me. And this is kind of cool because, you know, there's uh, there's there's a lot of people who might want to friend you, and uh, you either like don't know them very well or they're acquaintances. And there's other people who are like your family, where if you know you're having a baby or something, you'd want to tell them. You know, so so there's these different categories of friends. And there might be some people who 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 know you but you don't know them maybe someone you went to middle school so it's kind of like you're tagging them you. right so like the circles you're tagging people of like what kind of yeah. friend they are so this way this this the fact that it's asymmetric i think is actually a huge bonus i mean yeah. for me the the thing that killed facebook was when my grandma requested to be my friend <laughs> i mean that was kind of the end of facebook for me i, I really did you know it's like i can't tell her no but now i can't post rude jokes on facebook and you know, it just, it just, it gets to the point where it's like, you can't really do anything useful, you know? Yeah. So, so that'd be cool. Um, so I definitely something to watch. We'll see how it goes. Um, I guess, you know, they've had a couple of forays and I know that's a big uh, thing for them. They want to get into social networking. And so yep. uh, hopefully this will, this will be different when I get on, I guess I'll, or you get on when I ever, we'll be able to give a little bit more detailed report. Yeah. So say for what sure. it's like. One interesting thing is, um, uh, historically, if you look at things on at Google that have been blocked by the Chinese government, they've been the popular things. Like, like Buzz didn't get blocked and Wave didn't get blocked by the Chinese firewall, but uh, Google Plus was immediately blocked by the Chinese firewall. Oh, so, so maybe they're like precognizant of uh, how good yeah, it's that's be. right. They're forecasting. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, the, if you use Google, uh, the Chinese firewall as a predictive model so i need Google to Plus create a hedge popular. fund that has this in mind yeah yeah create Spe a fund speaking of speaking of finance and social networkings <laughs> yeah, our, our next news article is zynga 
going for their initial public offering, which means that they're going to try to uh, sell stocks, shares of the company in order to yep. make some money. And, uh, you know, there's a way for the investors and stuff to cash out. But one of the interesting requirements that the United States has is that in order to be able to do this, in order to be able to sell publicly portions of your company, uh, to do that, the people who regulate that, the Securities Exchange Commission, requires you to release information in a certain manner and in a certain way to basically protect the public to know what they're investing in and know that that's been, you know, kind of regulated in check. So people have to, they can't lie about how much money they make or be completely secret about what they do. And uh, so Zynga filing for their IPO means they had to release numbers about like how much money they they make, where they make it, that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean they have to spill all of the details, but more details than they have previously. And so one thing that was learned is that they have a, a special contract in place with uh, Facebook. Oh, so we should explain, I guess, Zynga is the company that does a lot of the social networking games uh, yep. on Facebook and other places. I think now they even do stuff not on Facebook, but like Farmville, uh, I don't know what the other ones. I actually don't know that I play any Zynga games, but yeah, I think they have one where like you build a city. I don't play any of them either, unfortunately. But but, but yeah, they, they have several. Yeah, yeah, and I think they have like a uh, like a poker playing one. They have a whole bunch, and their their key is like right is to have it to where you do better in the game, or a portion of the game is getting other people involved. So like you and I both being like friends in the game means we both do better because of that. But it keeps us both playing the game. And then to do, like, progress faster, you can pay money to basically go faster, even though the game is free to play normally. Right. Yeah, it was actually really interesting. I was reading another article where they were discussing how they reported the income. And uh, because apparently, like, they had to, because the Security Exchange Commission was kind of like, they have all these different very segmented types of income. And they actually treated things you buy online microtransactions as actual things so for example um let's say you buy a tractor in farmville so they actually count that as a capital investment as if as if the same as if you bought a tractor from from home depot or something so a capital investment versus you paying for a service so for example uh if you buy uh ads on google ads that's a service you're paying for them to you know show you these ads uh, but when you're buying you know a tractor even though it's just ones and zeros they're considering it a capital investment and they've they've uh, estimated how long people play on zynga um the average user i think they said plays 18 months before stopping um so yeah i know isn't that crazy so so they basically said they're leasing you a tractor for 18 months in game but they're treating it as a real tractor on paper um, well, yeah, I guess there's just, there's obligations that come with that, right? Like they can't n not have the server. Excuse me. They can't not have the server that has the tractor on it anymore. Right. That's right. So they, they're forced to provide the tractor for at least 18 months because they've made this claim on paper and wow. things like that. That's interesting. But yeah, yeah I think was, that's pretty cool that, uh, you know, Zynga's got kind of their tied so closely with Facebook at this point in time. I've heard the converse as well. Facebook is uh, alleged to go public soon as well do their ipo and people yep. are saying facebook makes a lot of their money off of zynga so it's kind of yep. interesting these are these two companies are really symbiotic at this point yeah yeah definitely i have kind of an interjection news article i didn't post didn't post this but i will bring this uh 
uh, to everyone's attention. This is kind of a shocker, but uh, California. So as you know, I moved to the Valley not too long ago, and uh, one thing that California is known for is having a lot of taxes. And uh, they're, they've decided to start charging an online sales tax. Have you heard of this? Uh, no, I heard something similar about not people who are associates for like Amazon having to pay taxes on the money they make so they just stop having them. But this sounds different. Yeah, basically, if I understand this correctly, and I don't know if it's been passed. It says passed, so I guess it's I guess it's it's done. But basically, if I, you know, as a California resident, buy anything online, regardless of what state it's in or anything, I have to pay sales tax. So um, wow, that's uh, yeah, that's really. Well, I, I, think, I feel like I think a lot of a lot of states have had that for a while, um, but they just really not been enforced. Yeah, that's a good point. And this one might be also be equally hard to enforce. But I think that, um, you know, this like on the surface, your first reaction is, you know, this sucks because I have to pay more taxes or whatever. But looking at like the bigger picture, I feel like this is sort of a good thing in terms of the macroeconomics because the brick and mortar places are really just getting shafted i mean like if amazon can sell me something for less because they have this distribution network and it's on demand and they have free shipping with amazon prime which we which we just talked about there's not really any reason for these brick and mortar places to exist you know uh, but but yet there is a reason for them to exist because often people want artisans so for example um you might want fresh produce like you might want you know, fruits and vegetables from a local garden instead of getting them, you know, through some distribution center in Kansas, you know. And so by not charging online sales tax, you really sort of screw all of those people essentially and they can't, uh, you know, they can't function. So, you know, but you know, at the same time, everyone, you know, not really too fond of paying more taxes. So it's really a double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean, we could go into this a long time. It's not really the right podcast for it, but... Uh... Yeah, there's yeah, a lot of point. economic considerations, and I have actually kind of a lot of opinions about uh, online sales tax or not. But uh, yeah, we probably should punt on that so that we don't. Know. That's not why people tuned in. Yeah, yeah, good point. It could probably take a long time. So no, that's good what you said. It just uh, I don't want to I don't want to bite on that that hook. <laughs> yeah. On a lighter note, uh, I was uh, walking to the, a grocery store in the area, and I happened upon this sign. And the sign was really fascinating. Right in front of a grocery store, it's uh, Site of First Silicon Device and Research Manufacturing Company in Silicon Valley. The research conducted here led to the development of the Silicon Valley, 1956. Oh. And little did I know, but the, uh, the uh, grocery store right next to my house is the place where the first transistor was built. So not so invented, this, but like the first ones were produced or whatever. Right. I believe okay. the guy who invented it, he invented it at MIT, um, but then he moved back to Silicon Valley um, because he originally went to Caltech and he moved back, back home. And, uh, and yeah, and built and started this company that built the first transistor. So. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. So if you have, if you have a chance and just uh, want to do some light browsing, check that out. It has a whole history of the transistor. I'll get right read about company. Jason's grocery store. <laughs> yeah, that's are right. you listed it, as a notable patron of that grocery store? Uh, not notable. <laughs> well, we should go add that. Yeah, we should. We should. Co-host of programming throwdown is a regular. <laughs> Maybe visitor. I'll make my own sign and put it right next to that sign. Okay.
<laughs> it's time for the tool of the bye week. Tool of the bye week. So what's your tool? So my tool of the bye week is uh, Evernote. And uh, Evernote, I, I guess it's, yeah, it's still a tool. It's kind of a service and a tool mixed into one. But it's basically a note-taking uh, thing, note-taking program. And uh, it's really nice because it, it's supported on a lot of different platforms. They have like a, a one for your PC. They have one for your iPhone, your iPad. I, you know, I think they have it for Android devices, maybe even your Nook. I don't know. But they have it for a lot of platforms. And uh, what it does is there's, you know, mostly like what a note-taking app should be. You're able to like, you know, just say, hey, this note or that note. And uh, what it does is it syncs them between, so you have like an account, and then it syncs them between the different platforms. And so that's really nice that you're able to, you know, make a note in one thing. Like I might be on my iPad using my iPad on a plane, and so I'm not online. And I might type a note into my Evernote. And then um, later when I'm on Wi-Fi, it can sync that up with my iPhone. And then I can have it on my iPhone. And then if I get on my computer and it's like, a, you know, something I need to look up online, I can bring it up and, you know, already have it and just copy and paste the search term or the website or whatever. And so nice. that's pretty cool. Um, they also do some interesting things where you can take like audio notes and uh, even you can take a picture of something and have that be the note. And one of the interesting things about that is they actually run like a OCR, optical character recognition. And yep. so um, when you take a picture of it, it'll actually like try to figure out what the text says. So like it was a handwritten note or I take it like of a, like a picture of like a, a price tag or like a sign or something. And then when you search through your notes, it'll actually return those results. Oh, and nice. Yeah. So that's all really cool. It's just a, like a generally really useful uh, device to have. Um, and it's free. There is a limit, um, I think, if you use, and I don't know what it, it, it's the amount of documents you store or how many you do per month or whatever. I've never hit it. And I think it goes to like uh, $5 a month or like $45, $50 for the year. Um, if you go above a certain like megabytes of usage per month, okay. Um, but I've never hit that, so it works really well for what I use it, and it's completely free. Yeah, here it says it says uh, you have to go over a gig. So okay, yeah, most people so, are probably under that. So yeah, so I think it's one of those things that almost everybody's under that, and it's just to keep people from abusing it. But you know, some people choose to support because it is so useful and so cool. So some people choose to go ahead and use it anyways. Oh, the other yeah, thing is totally it does awesome. like a geolocation. So uh, when you write a note, it, you can see where notes were written, which is kind of cool. Oh, yeah, that's really useful. So it's like you find a, a restaurant that you really want to go to, but not that day. You can just make a little note, and then later on you have directions to it or something. Uh, yeah, not, uh, maybe it'll do that. I don't know. That'd be cool. But uh, <laughs> I haven't tried that. But it, no, it notes where you make the note at. Like Yeah, well, like I mean, like if you're in front of work, the so – Like I you can, walk like, by so... a restaurant and oh, you say, okay, I really yeah, want to yeah, – yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's your? That's tool pretty sweet, man. Tool, tool of the bye week. My tool of the bye week is free NX, and actually, it's, in more general, it's just NX in general. But the the free version is is uh is almost 100% fully functional, so uh, you can jump on that. And basically, what this is is a way to do remote desktop, but it's a way that's extremely efficient. So, uh, a lot of people have used you know the uh, Windows remote desktop or VNC. And uh, the way these programs work is they basically they take screenshots of your desktop. Uh, or I guess another way of looking at it is they make a movie out of your desktop. And so 
you know, as you open windows and move them around and things like that, they're streaming a video of your desktop over to you. And because your desktop usually doesn't change that much, uh, you know, they could do this fairly quickly and they could use all this compression and things like that. Um, now, on the other end, there's something called um, there's something called the X Windows system, which is the Windows system that Unix and Linux computers use. So, you know, Windows has something called Aero, which when you actually move the windows around on your Windows computer, you minimize and things like that. There's an engine there that's controlling all of that called Aero. Um, on Mac, there's one called Coco, and Coco is handling the minimizing. And Coco looks pretty cool when you minimize something; it like shrinks down into the bottom right on your Mac, and that's all done by Coco. Um, on Linux and Unix machines, they have something called X Windows, and X Windows has X forwarding. So what it does is instead of sending all of these, uh, instead of sending a video of your desktop, it sends commands over. So it says, "Hey, open a window. Hey, move this window." Uh, sometimes it will send pictures like here's a picture now put this picture on the window over here but but it's mostly like 99% of it is just commands text and um, you know just to put it in perspective a dictionary of text like a dictionary with every word in the English language and everything it explains would be what would you say Patrick like 5 meg or something of text oh, that's um, a good question I should know this oh wait let's do some math here let's see so let's say a but dictionary keep going. Has, I'll look it up while you keep going. Yeah, let me just take a guess. Let's say a dictionary has 50,000 words in it, and each word has like a 100-character definition. Then that's just 4 megs of text, right? So uh, you can ex you can write a lot of text for 4 megs um, versus 4 meg is just you know a handful of pictures. So X-forwarding is much, much better than, um, than VNC or Windows Remote Desktop. But X-forwarding has a number of flaws. It's very old technology, and it doesn't really support, you know, modern operating systems and modern, you know, with their fancy effects and things like that. Um, so if you run X-Windows, it's not going to look very sharp. It's going to look very dated. So this NX technology is a completely new protocol, and it's been implemented in every architecture. So to do X-forwarding, you have to be on Mac or, or Linux. But to do NX, you can do NX on Windows. So it's completely cross-platform. And um, <clears throat> it's it's much better than VNC and remote desktop and all these things for the reasons I mentioned. It's just the compression is much superior. And in addition, it's also secure. It runs over SSH, which means that for example, let's say you're using VNC or X-forwarding or any of these, and you're using a browser inside of a remote desktop session. So you're at home, or you're at work, let's say, but you're logged into your computer at home, and you're using the internet there for some reason. If you type in your Gmail password, those keystrokes go across the wire um, unencrypted. So someone listening on the wire in between your work and your home or someone on your Wi-Fi, if you're at Starbucks or something, can just see your password in plain text. But um, if you're using NX, everything is encrypted, so they can't do anything like that. Well, there are a lot of ways to encrypt VNC as well, uh, but the default configuration, yeah. Yeah, you can. We should. I mean, we shouldn't allude that anybody using VNC is unsafe. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get around that. Right, and the same is true for X forwarding and remote desktop. So yeah, I guess that we should add that caveat. But with NX, it's built in. Um, you don't have to do any tunneling or anything like that. 
Um, it just it's it's built from the ground up to run over. Yeah, so it looks like there's clients for for almost everything, but it looks like uh, the servers, so like what computer you're actually using, is restricted to uh, Linux and Solaris. Oh really? Is that am I? That's uh, that's the oh, website I'm on. You know what it is? Um, this is correct. So FreeNX server is a Mac, Linux, or or uh, Solaris only. To use NX server on Windows, you have to use the paid one. So basically, okay. a bunch of nerds made a free version of NX called FreeNX, but they they didn't make it for Windows. Oh, but if you get okay, this is another thing. The people who make the paid version of NoNX, they have a free version as well, um, the NX Free Edition. And they have, I believe they have a server for Windows, maybe. And uh, Oh, no, they don't either. Wow, that's surprising. All right, well, but for the, if, you're, if it's for a computer that you have, you should check it out for sure. Yeah, it sounds yeah cool. definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you're running OS X or Linux... Um, and you want to, you know, get at your computer across the network or something like that. And so it works really well. Not a lot of lag or anything. No, it works extremely well. It has a setting where um, you can sort of dial it down based on the amount of bandwidth that you have. Um, and I recommend. This is a good point. I actually recommend putting it on the middle setting. So even though, you know, for example, going from my desktop to my server inside my own house, um, I had it on the max setting. And um, that wasn't a problem, but I noticed that if I put it on the third setting, the, the internet usage went down dramatically and it looks almost exactly the same. So I think on the highest setting, it's not even compressing the images, like it's just raw images. Um, but in the middle, it uses like a lossless compression. So you really, um, you know, have nothing to, to lose by going there. Um, awesome. There are a couple of threads talking about how there's no NX server on Windows. Okay, so maybe that part but wasn't that. completely correct, Jason. Yeah, we'll sorry have to about that. retraction. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we actually said something wrong. This actually is extremely rare. We usually oh, only wait, say whoa, something whoa, wrong. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's a bold statement, sir. <laughs> this might be. I think this might be the first time. Oh, we should oh. we should have a cake. We're gonna get hate mail. <laughs> No, but it looks like I think some people are working on NX server on Windows, but it doesn't look like it's there. But uh, but uh, if you have a if you have a Linux server, and why don't you have a Linux server? You should definitely be running running NX server. If you're a guy who's been using X forwarding or VNC, definitely check this out. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I think that's that's it. So is it time for a prologue? I think it's time for some prologue. So prologue is definitely. A computer scientist language. So, no so developers or programmers here. Yes, start off. Prolog, I, I don't know. Hmm. I, I think it stands for programmable logic, but I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think, think that's it. Right. That's right. Yeah, I don't think it actually. Doesn't actually know. stand for anything. No, it stands yeah, for programming logic. Yeah, but uh, that's definitely what it is about. And so, to talk about programming or to talk about prolog, we have to talk about predicate calculus especially specifically first order predicate calculus and first order logic well so why so why, be, why did you say okay. it was a computer scientist program are you going to tell us that yeah yeah definitely we'll it's get a bold into statement that. Oh, okay all right yeah this is so you know this is going to be pretty geeked out but we're gonna you know break it down and we're gonna ex to to you know explain all the details but uh, there's something called well first there's something called logic and logic comes down to many different things but but 
one of two of those things are deductive and inductive reasoning. So can you give me an example of inductive reasoning? So inductive reasoning is building up from something smaller, right? So like inductive reasoning would be like dogs have, oh, that's a bad example. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example that's, uh, that's going to always <laughs> be true seat. and not just in a restrained example. But uh, I only go outside when it's raining. It's currently raining. So I go out. Uh, I only go outside when it's not raining. It's currently raining. So I won't go outside. Did I get it yeah, right? Yeah, kind of. That's okay. kind of. So I, I'm, that's a bad example. Do you have a better <laughs> one? Yeah. So, for example, um, inductive reasoning is, is, is essentially guessing. So let's say, um, let's say, for example, okay, uh, I live in Silicon Valley and it's, um, the, uh, it rains like 0.1 centimeter for the entire month of July. Like it never rains in July statistically. So that, that's an inductive statement. So, you know, it has rained in July at some point, you know, maybe 25 years ago or something, but it's so infrequent that I induce that tomorrow it's not going to rain, which is, you know, it can be wrong. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, hundred percent true, but I'm making a assumption. I'm inducing that it's not going to rain tomorrow based on all this prior history of it, you know, never raining in July or raining so infrequently. So, okay, so you're making a prediction about the future. Right. That would be induction. Okay. Now, deduction is where you um, deduce, where you uh, come up with new facts based on existing data. But deduction doesn't involve any guessing. So, for example, um, you know, uh, all mammals have hair. And Patrick and I are mammals, last time we checked. And so, therefore, we, dedu we deduce that we have hair because we are in the set of mammals and anything that's in the set of mammals has hair. So, this is you can think of this as like a transitive property. Like, we are in class A and class A implies fact X. Therefore, we have fact X. Yeah, that was what I was deduction. doing. I messed that up. I got it yeah, wrong. Yeah, no worries. Wrong. Tell so, me I was wrong. All right, second time. Crap. In one episode. In one episode, man. Sorry. What the heck? All right. So anyways, <laughs> uh, so you, from this, you can deduce that I'm never wrong and Patrick is wrong twice. Uh, you have to induce about it, but you could actually deduce. I was wrong the first. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, okay. So now we have deduction. First order logic is based on deduction. So you might say the mammals example would be fine. So to explain the mammals example in first order predicate calculus, you would say, for all x where x is a mammal and then you draw an arrow which means implication that implies that x has hair or has hair as a function with x in parentheses so if the has mammal function can run on x is true on the variable x then the has hair function is also true on the variable x does that make sense yeah yeah so that's that's first order predicate calculus now you can then you can say, um, let's say X is Patrick, and let's say is mammal Patrick is true, and this, if following first order predicate logic, you can deduce that has hair Patrick is also true based on the the law that we that we that we set up the inference that we set up. So 
With all that said, Prolog is a programming language specifically targeted at implementing uh, first order predicate logic and doing deductions. So, so what does the first order means there? It means you don't make two jumps in conclusion. It means you just make one. Is that what the first order means? Um, oh, I used to know this. Let me look no, that's up. Okay. <laughs> well, here you you could talk about maybe the history of Prolog, and I'll look up second all right, order. So yeah, logic. so so Prolog's actually pretty old. It's it's not new. It's been around for a while uh, since the seventies. It was invented by. Uh, a guy named Alan, oh, I'm going to mess this up, Cole Moreau <laughs> and Philip Roussel. And it was, uh, it was, I think it was really, like you said, it's a computer scientist paper. So, I mean, there's a lot of people kind of doing this kind of logic and this kind of reasoning and saying that computers should be as well. And so, so somebody actually finally came up with the idea of having this, this programming language to implement it this way called Prolog. And they were able to do that. The first ones were, you know, we, we talked about this about more early. It's, it was an interpreted language. Later, you know, kind of people were able to figure out ways of actually like doing more compilation type stuff. And it mm -hmm. kind of grew over time. It's, uh, it's been around. I mean, it, it's still used a lot in universities and stuff. And it's, it's never really faded away and kind of gone away like some languages do. Uh, but it's never really gone mainstream, I don't think. I mean, it's never had a time when... It was the you know most commonly used, or even a significant portion of programming was done in it. Yeah, I mean, there was actually a time when, and there's some people to this day who believe that first-order predicate logic is is the key to sort of unlocking all the mysteries of the universe. And uh, this was sort of the key to reaching human-level intelligence. So people in the 60s and the 70s really believed this, and. Um, You'll find guys like Minsky and whatever that still kind of believe this. They're very kind of set in their ways. And but you you ever see like you know Space Odyssey two thousand one that movie with Hal, the robot, no. who uh, you know takes over but, the but ship. Go ahead. Oh, okay. But yeah, basically in the sixties and the seventies, you know, in fact, several famous computer theoreticians are quoted as saying, you know, we'll have human level intelligence within our lifetimes. You know, implemented in the computer, and so. There's a time where people believed that deduction and induction were, and you know, were the key to 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 getting human-level intelligence. And of course, now we understand that that's not the case. That the um, that knowledge itself involves very high-level structures, and we could. This sort of gets us on a tangent. But regardless, during that time, you know, Prolog and other predicate languages were extremely popular because. You know, a lot of people with a lot of money believed that they were going to get human-level brain-like intelligence from them. But yeah, since then, uh, it's really kind of died down in popularity. But uh, they do have their applications. So, so that's interesting. So the knowledge thing. Now, uh, we should kind of point out here that your background is in artificial intelligence. So this is right up your alley. Uh, yep. Not so much up mine. So if I sound like an idiot, because I am on this topic... Uh, well, anyways. you know, it's it it goes both ways. Like with assembly, you know, we were definitely yeah. we were asking so you how showing to add, the strengths. So. Everybody has their kind of strengths. So, yep. uh, so this is up your alley. But now I know a lot of people talk about expert systems. Yep. How does that tie into what you're talking about about knowledge and about people trying to to be as smart as humans or have computers yeah, be as smart as humans? So let's first let's talk about the answering your question from before first okay. order versus okay. second yeah, yeah, order. Yep. Yeah, so second order, so first order logic, all the variables are either all or or um, or one. So in other words, I could say uh, if 
if any person is a murderer in the room, then everyone is a suspect. So it's like, I don't know who the murderer is, but there's a murderer somewhere in this room. Everyone is a suspect. Okay. Um, you know, in the, once you get to second order logic, then you get into things like sets. So for, in other words, for all people who are the set of people who went on this trip, then like those people could be murderers. You get into just really complicated... It's called neutrosophic, so it's based on, uh, you know, heuristics, uh, based on heuristics, but uh, uh, probabilities. So, in other words, for everyone who went to the Giants game, half of them uh, experienced this. And so now you have this bifurcation, you have this set. So, second order is very complicated and, and very limited, um, but first order is really kind of where it's at in terms of doing things that are practical. Okay. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, so what was your second question? <laughs> My second question so <laughs> expert systems. Right, expert systems. So by definition, expert system is one that uses deduction and different rules to, uh, to make, create a lot of facts. This is, this is the core of an expert system. So Prologue is the core of an expert system or the deduction yeah. of reasoning. I, yeah, I, yeah, I missed definitely. what the, this is. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. So for example, um, you might think of a medical. This this is this is a good example. Is medical, uh, you know, not guessing, but medical diagnosis. Okay. So, for example, you might have you seen these flow charts where it's like, um, you know, figuring out what illness your kid has. Like, is if your kid has a runny nose, but then oh, it, on WebMD that happens on WebMD. If you go on WebMD, it says click on the body part where the problem is. Yeah. Then you so click it's on like, it. So if your kid has a runny nose, then it asks you another question. Like, does your kid have have rashes? And if he does have rashes, then he has this disease. If not, then he just has a cold or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah. So so this is an expert system where they're collecting facts. You can think of this in first-order predicate logic. So in other words, there's a, there's a first-order predicate rule that says, you know, if X... So, so if the function runny nose for X is true and the function... Uh, rash for x is true that implies that the function i don't know has measles is true right i'm just making these up don't ever okay. diagnose yeah. your kid with yeah. this podcast but <laughs> this is not but, medical um, advice <laughs> yeah so so that is an example of you know a set of rules in first order of logic and then going through and saying uh you know hey johnny has a cold and johnny has a rash uh and then traversing through these rules to discover that Johnny has measles is true. That is an expert system. Okay. Now, there's two ways to implement an expert system. One is through forward chaining and one is through backward chaining. And so we'll talk about both of these. Um, backward chaining starts at all of the goals and goes backwards. So for example, uh, going back to our, so let's start with forward chaining because that's, that's easier. So with forward chaining, uh, you would take uh, let's say, um, let's make this a little bit more complicated. If somebody has uh, a runny nose and, or if somebody has measles and they have, uh, I don't know, constipation, then they actually have something else. They have avian flu, let's say. So you put in the facts, you know, Johnny has measles, he has constipation, or no, sorry, Johnny has a runny nose 
Uh, he has, what was the other thing for me? Oh, he has a runny nose, he has a rash, and he has constipation. Those are the three facts that you put into this WebMD, this expert system. And it goes forward and it says, hey, if Johnny has measles, therefore, he ha and he has this, uh, this other thing, then he has avian flu. But it doesn't know that Johnny has measles yet because it hasn't inferred that yet. That's a different rule. So it skips that rule. It says, well, we can't apply this rule yet. All we know is that Johnny has, he has a cold, he has a rash, and he has constipation. He doesn't have measles yet, so skip it. So it goes to the next rule, and it says, does he have a cold and a rash? Oh, he does. Therefore, he also has measles, right? Got it. Now he has four things. So then it goes back over again through the rules, and when it gets to that rule where if he has measles and constipation, that rule also fires, and then now he has the avian flu one. So that's forward chaining, where you're taking your facts and you're finding how many of the rules fit, creating new facts based on those rules, and then just repeating this process. Um, the problem with this is, you know, the rules might explode exponentially. So you might end up inferring just tons of things which, which might have nothing to do with what you want. So for example, let's say you wanted to know, does Johnny have the avian flu? And you don't care if he has measles or not. Like, you just want to know this one answer to this one question. You could start there and go backwards. Like, you could say, somebody, anybody, not necessarily Johnny, but a person has the avian flu if they have these two things, which was uh, measles and constipation. And then you could say, a person has measles if they have, you know, cold symptoms and a rash. And you could take the cold systems and the rash and substitute the measles with those two things. You see what I'm saying? So you're kind yeah. of going backwards and substituting things in, and you're generating this one like mega rule. Seems like you're going which, doing less work that way too. So you don't have to go through all the rules trying to figure out if they apply. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you know, backwards chaining works when you want to find one answer, and forward chaining works when you want to just figure out what answers are out there. And so, as you can imagine, you can make tons and tons of rules. And people did this. There's something called uh, CYC. Let me see what it stands for. Uh, it's called Open CYC. Da, 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 da. Uh, it's just called it's just called uh, CYC technology. Anyways, basically, what they did was they generated tons and tons of rules. And you can go to OpenCYC.org. You can actually download the rule database. And these people actually got experts in every single discipline and generated millions and millions of rules. I mean, this was in the 60s and the 70s when people thought that they were going to end up with a brain when they finished this project. And so literally, like, they called ballerinas, famous ballerinas, and they said, give us facts about ballerinas. And they would say, well, ballerinas have strong feet and strong legs. Ballerinas can jump high. You know, they just kept loading the system full of facts. And then it's almost like if you've ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? They just load the system full of facts. And then the expectation is you can say, you know, uh, it, you know, should we increase the taxes? Or should, I, should, I have, should my wife and I have another child? And it will somehow use all of these facts and infer, well, based on ballerinas and everything else, um, you know, you know, you shouldn't have a child or something like that. So I take um, it this didn't work out so well because I've never seen one of these machines down at the store where I can buy one or use it. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that, you know, as Patrick said, I've, you know, versed history in AI. But but uh, to keep it short, basically 
predicate logic and rules like these are not the way that knowledge is stored in your brain. Um, it's much more, it's much less opaque, right? Um, you know, I mean, think of like a floor, like when you uh, do navigation around your house or your office or things like that, you don't have a floor plan. Like you don't really know the thickness of the walls in your house, if you think about it, or the distance, you know, from the wall in your bedroom to whatever room is on the other side, the thickness of that, the distance of that between those 18 two walls. 18 feet, six inches. <laughs> 18, that's a pretty thick wall, man. You should have another <laughs> room there. But, uh, but yeah, you don't know this, right? So it's the way that you navigate in your house is much cloudier than that. And it doesn't really use rules. So uh, you don't yeah, know in advance say, what you want to know. Well, that's, that's another thing. True. Right? That's another thing is that you have to sort of learn on the fly and you're constantly generating, generating these rules and tearing some down and, um, using second order logic, you know, some of the rules, you know, might exist, but you're not sure. So in other words, if you see a ball falling to the ground and it looks shiny and has that kind of like marbleish texture, you're pretty sure it's a bowling ball and it's going to go wham when it hits on the ground. But if you see a ball that's around the same size, but it has bumps on it and lines like a basketball, you kind of think that it's going to bounce. And if if basketballs didn't bounce, over time, you would they would train you to think the opposite, right? So you're constantly building these these models that are based on statistics, not based on logic. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, Pro, uh, Prolog is still extremely useful for building these logic-based systems because you think about it, the thing that it's doing is it's searching through all these rules. It has a bunch of facts. And you could think of the facts kind of like uh, th searching through the facts, kind of like searching through anything, the internet or searching through doing pathfinding. It all comes down to sort of exploring your options and finding out what the future is like and, and what other options are out there. And Prolog has a sort of a built-in search engine that is extremely, extremely optimized. So because so, of that, it is, is very useful. So it sounds like there's almost two phases here. I guess it's a little bit different than most programming, but you got one where you're kind of building up this, uh, the, these uh, statements, these truths, this knowledge, and another one where you're querying it for something. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a huge part of it. So, you know, Prolog is, um, it's all about, you know, generating the Prolog files with all of your facts and your inferences and then, as you said, going through later and saying, I'm going to give you, so I'm, you have essentially one thing that makes Prolog confusing to new people is that it doesn't differentiate sort of these permanent facts, like, you know, if all mammals have hair and things like that, from different statements that you make on the fly, like Patrick is a mammal or something. Like Patrick is a mammal is only useful for that instance where you're talking about Patrick. Once you're talking about John, the stuff about Patrick doesn't really matter. Um, and so that's sort of the key to all of this. And that's something that Prolog doesn't quite handle that well, which makes it hard to use. But, um, um, but, but it's definitely, that's definitely an important part of it. And uh, one thing that's important to note of Prolog is it's Turing complete. So I don't know if we really talked about, have we mentioned Turing uh, complete? Yeah, I don't know. We might need to save that for, for another, because that could bear a whole <laughs> lot of discussion. Yeah, that really gets into, but let's suffice it to say, um, you can write any well, program that's writable in Prolog. Exactly, exactly. So, and but it makes no of, statement to how hard or easy it is to write it or how long or fast or slow it might be. That's right, that's right. So, you know, 
you can actually implement sorting. You can do file I.O. You can do anything in Prolog that you can do in another language. But keep in mind that it's geared to um, to doing this first order predicate logic. This, should, this gets into something a little interesting, which is the idea of bindings. And we haven't talked about this either, but I'll just mention it briefly. Many languages have bindings for other languages. And so what that means is, let's say, um, let's say I'm writing uh, some kind of application to do an expert system. Like this WebMD is a perfect example. So, you know, the expert system part where I collect the facts of the patients and I make inferences of whatever, you know, ailments they might have, you want that to be done in Prolog because you don't want to have to write your own expert system in C or C++ or Java. You know, Prolog does it way better than any of us could ever do it. But at the same time, you're writing an application for the web. So, I mean, it's going to be done in JavaScript or on the back end in a web server like Python or C++. So, Prolog has what's called bindings where you can create a Prolog environment and run Prolog functions from inside of another language. And uh, many languages have bindings for other languages. You can, you can write C code inside of Java. You can do um, there's something called Swig, <clears throat> which takes C or C++ code and generates bindings for something like 20 or 30 different languages. Yeah, we've talked um, about this a little bit. I don't know if you ever said specifically it's called binding, but we've talked about in other languages how easy it is to use them inside of yeah. different ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Prolog is definitely easy to use. In fact, someone has implemented a Prolog interpreter in Python, so you don't even have to use the binding. Um, it's just the interpreter is right there. So... Is Prolog, Prolog interpreted or compiled? Yeah, so Prolog is interpreted. Um, there are different sort of tricks you can use to sort of pre-compute things. And there are there's this thing called a cut that you can use, which gets into more advanced aspects of Prolog and sort of adds more sort of, I guess, pre-processing. But yeah, at the heart, it's definitely an interpreted language. And if you think about it, the Prolog is... Okay, so we talked about MATLAB and how when you're using MATLAB, you might have an operation that says add these two arrays. And that's actually millions of C++ or C, millions of assembly instructions, right? But it's all just one line of MATLAB. Prolog is much the same way, where you're writing these facts and then you just say one line, like, uh, you know, do I have measles or something? And Prolog's doing all this stuff behind the scenes in C or C++, or as I said, Python has a version. So it's it could be interpreted without really any penalty because there aren't many instructions. So are there are, are most of the interpreters commercial or open source or? Yeah. So there is a GNU Prolog, um, which is an open source version of Prolog. There is a SWI Prolog, which is by far the most popular. Um, that one isn't open source, but uh, it's extremely fast. The the uh, the resolution engine is just insanely fast for that one. Highly optimized. Um, I think there are. Are there any more that you can think of? Mm -hmm. uh, there's JI program, uh, JI Prolog. I believe there's a Pi Prolog, or maybe it's called PyLog. Let me look it up, just so I. So we don't make our third <laughs> mistake. It's oh, okay. it's actually called PythoLogic. But, um, but yeah, that's a module for Python that gives you the programming, uh, the Prolog interpreter. So I would imagine that, that Prolog is used 
for kind of things like we already been alluding to, like kind of or were used for like medical diagnoses things. I know I also saw that they were used some for air traffic control stuff where there's yep. a lot of kind of rules about how something should be handled. Yeah, definitely. I mean, anytime you have a bank of rules, I know that uh, at university we actually developed a prologue theory creator. And so this is really interesting. We input a bunch of theories and observations that were known to be true. And then it automatically just used its deduction engine to come up with new theories. So, you know, if, I mean, this is, I'm just making this up, but if you know that, uh, <clears throat> like all, I don't know, all graphs, you know, with this many vertices also have this other property. And graphs with this third property have X vertices. Therefore, graphs with this property have that property. You know, just things like that. And it would just, it actually came up with just hundreds of new theories. And it was really, really interesting. And papers were published and things like that. And so you feel a little guilty publishing a paper with a theory that you didn't, that you wrote a program to create. But then on the other <laughs> hand, we published like tons of theories with one paper. So we felt like it was justified. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's Prolog pretty popular in uh, Asia, right? Yeah, Prologue took off big time in Asia. It's actually still pretty popular. Um, but other than that, it's, um, you know, here in the U.S., it's mainly just people use it for geeking out. It is used in the, it was used to create Erlang. So uh, oh, okay. Programming yeah, Language Inventors. Erlang yep, Programming Language Inventors like Python. I mean, sorry, like Prologue. Okay. Again, you know, the key strength of Prologue is that uh, it has this inference engine that does all this deduction so um and it has it you know extremely optimized so uh you know one thing you know you can think of this in terms of numbers it doesn't have to be facts so for example uh let's say navigating a maze you might say you know if you are in this spot of the maze then you're one square away from you know any adjacent spot that you can get to that's not you know blocked by a wall um, so you can just fill in these rules. You can even write a, another program that generates the rules, that looks at the maze and generates all the rules for all the you know adjacent tiles in your maze. And then you can just say, you know, I am in this square. Um, is it possible for me to be at the finish line? That's actually another thing that we should mention is Prologue doesn't just give you yes or no answers, but it also will tell you how it gets there. So going back to like the measles example, you could say, do I have avian flu? And it says yes. But then you can also say, well, you know, how is that possible? You know, here are my symptoms. How did I, how did you figure it out? And it'll say, oh, well, I followed this rule and I followed that rule and I followed this rule and then I deduced this. So you can use that, um, you can use that trail that it left behind um, to sort of navigate a maze or to do robot control or many other tasks. Yeah, uh, people, I, I remember doing a, uh, somebody was telling they did a Sudoku solver in Prologue that way. Yep. So all the yeah. rules about how to figure out the next number in a Sudoku puzzle. Yeah, I mean, Sudoku is perfect for this, right? Because you have different facts. Like if I have a one in this row, then I don't have a one anywhere else in the same row. And so these are all just facts. You can write a meta program. You can write a script in Python that just generates all the facts for Sudoku and then, or sorry, generates all the inferences for Sudoku and then give it the facts, which are the numbers that already exist in the puzzle and tell it to go. And um, it will 
very quickly generate the solution. That's the big thing I want people to get out of this is you can write your own you know, inference engine very quickly. You can just say, here's all my facts. Let me just go through all the rules, find out which ones are true, and then go through all the rules again. Um, you can do that, but it will take a very, very long time. Um, and I don't want to get into the specifics because it gets really complicated, but basically the prologue guys have made this extremely, extremely fast. And, um, you know, their, their program, if you write it in prologue versus make your own, you know, dumb inference engine that just looks at all the rules, it will just run, I don't even know, thousands of times faster. So, um, so the inference engine is key, but prologue does have some weaknesses. Yeah. So this doesn't sound like uh, it, it would fit, you know, with uh, the way computers work naturally. It doesn't seem like a good a good fit. I guess uh, you know, uh, you I guess you even having in the notes the von Neumann architecture, the way computers are now with uh, you know, an instruction instruction line, data lines, you know, registers and a processor, and trying to do you know just streams of math instructions. It doesn't seem exactly how this would work. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, look at, uh, you know, the example we gave where you want to check all these rules. Ideally, what you'd want is to just check all the rules at the same time. Like, you don't have to go one rule at a time. You can just say, look, here are all my facts. I want to check every single rule and find out which of these are true. But, like, they don't ha I don't have to check them in any order. I just want to check all of them. And then now I have a new set of facts. Now I want to check all the rules again. Um, so, you know, you think about your brain again. Your brain is completely decentralized. So in other words, you know, all of the neurons in your brain are all acting independently of each other. And the fact that, you know, you only consciously think of one thing at a time or a handful of things at a time is just because those sets of neurons are sort of dominating. But in the background, in your subconscious, you're thinking of just hundreds, thousands, millions of other things. And you're building up millions of inferences you know, everything you do is is adding more to this massive, massive inference engine that you have and everything you see. So this doesn't really fit, right? You know, the way computers work now, they execute one instruction at a time. You know, we talked in the assembly podcast about, you know, cache and registers and things like that. And, you know, the computer can only hold, you know, at the core, you know, 16, 32 numbers at a time. And it can only operate on on a hand on several of those, and only do one instruction at a time. So this sort of makes Python ex or sorry makes Prolog extremely <laughs> slow. So this goes against the nature of Prolog, which is you know that you have just all these rules and that the order doesn't matter. Yeah. So you know if we could implement Prolog on a brain, it would probably run much faster. But uh, but given that computers are the way they are. Um, you know, it just doesn't really fit. The language doesn't really fit with the environment that you're programming in. Yeah, it seems like it'd be hard. Like, I can't imagine trying to write a GUI in Prolog. Oh, yeah. I mean, anything that requires you to do things in sequence sort of just, it just is going against the nature of the inference engine. Like, the inference engine wants to search, and it wants to search everything. And if you want, if you want to have a certain recipe, like, let's say you want to take a number you know, add 10, then divide by 2, and then square it. Well, then you need to create an inference for each of those. You need to say, okay, here's this number, and it's in stage 1. And if a number is in stage 1, then you add 10 to it, 
or if a number is in stage one and you add 10 to it, now it's in stage two. But it's going to be looking at the stage three and stage four rules when it implements that one to see if there's anything else that matches. That's not so, going to be efficient. Yeah, it's going to run extremely slow. It just cannot do things in sequence because of its nature. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, a GUI or, you know, uh, anything that's like time-based or any type of like matrix math or anything like that is just going to be just brutally slow in Prolog. Yeah, and I guess that's not really a weakness. That's just not what it's used for. I, I, I mean, right? people, who, a weakness, yeah, yeah. I, we're trying, we're stretching a little here maybe to to say what weaknesses are for those, but that's okay. Yeah, that's true. I guess, you know, to be more broad, the weakness of Prolog is just that it has very specific applications. Yeah, that's right. It's very specific purpose. Yeah, that's right. And, that in a way and even in that purpose, though, it tends to be slower than maybe desirable. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, in, in many of the uh, expert systems, something like Prolog is almost overkill. You know, like the WebMD. How many rules do they really have? I mean, let's say they have... 638. Seriously? Oh, no, you're <laughs> I thought, I was like, man, Patrick's foo is incredibly strong. <laughs> His Google foo is epic. Um, you know, let's say they have 638,000 rules, right? Now you're starting to approach a space where Prolog is starting to become useful. But most systems, you can just, you know, implement it in C++ or, you know, they have different inference engines now in many languages and so prolog is i would say the the um applications are just just too specific like you really you know other than geeking out or uh you know uh unless you're really concerned about s speed and you have just tons of rules uh prolog really uh has very limited use but with that said it is extremely important to learn prolog because just understanding you know, predicate logic, why it's important. And just, you know, if nothing else to understand, you know, people like the smartest people in the world 30 years ago, 40 years ago, thought that Prologue would create a human brain. And just, just let that detonate in your mind for a second. You know, people, Minsky and, and, and all of these guys thought that Prologue was going to get human level intelligence. And just, I think just, just accepting that 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 was the state of things and just knowing that i think is is important yeah well i certainly learned a lot i mean i didn't know a lot of this stuff before and i'm going to go write up a bunch of rules and ask the prologue what the purpose of the universe is <laughs> that's right 42 <laughs> uh, yeah i think i met, i messed that quote up a little didn't i uh no i think you got what's it right. the meaning of oh, life the, the universe and everything in it yeah that's right that's there right. we go. We'll get it right. 42. Okay, anyways, that, that was that was geeky. Uh, do you got epic. any wrap-up notes? Thank you for um, everybody who's been, you know, rating us in iTunes and writing reviews, and we've gotten a couple more emails, so thank you for all of those. Continue to do that. If you want to send us an email, programmingthrowdown, one word, at gmail.com. Uh, you can check out our website at programmingthrowdown.blogspot.com. I know most people seem to be getting this through iTunes, um, but we do post show notes there, links to the articles we talk about. Not as exhaustive as uh, could be, but uh, can also write comments about an individual show. Yeah, definitely. I think that you know once we get our invites for for uh, Google Plus, we can uh, we'll have a Google Plus. Uh, you know, we'll put programming throwdown on Google Plus, and you can add it to your circle, and we'll post on. 
you know, upcoming shows and uh, you know, let you know. Some people didn't know we were out for about three weeks. Uh, when we usually do a show uh, bi-weekly yeah. because uh, we were both going through moving and being sick and things like that. And so the blog sort of keeps people up to date and also is a way for people to sort of tell us sort of what uh, what they want to hear. So um, we got some feedback for different things. Some people want to talk about games, want to talk about different platforms. And and uh, we I think we should kind of, we might start doing, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, right after the news, talk about, you know, a certain aspect, like like games or like frameworks or something like okay. that. So yeah, we might we might tackle tackle yeah, something th- like I that. Yeah, we'll probably think about a little shakeup of the format. Yeah, if you have any suggestions, definitely let us know. If you think that we we should uh, you know cut the news a little short and talk about a specific topic that uh, that you have interest in or want to know more about. Patrick and I are pretty eclectic when it comes to programming stuff. <laughs> We've done just about everything between the two of us, so um, we could definitely talk about talk about just about anything. So, all right. Well, I think th- that's it. Yeah. All right. So uh, next time, guys. Yeah. Have fun with prologue. The intro music is Axo by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.